Would you like to turn with me, please, in your uh, Bibles or devices uh, to Philippians chapter 1? We're going to be making just a a few changes as we uh, just go through this. I'm going to try and condense what I have here uh, down. We're only going to uh, uh, focus today on verses 27 to 30, even though in your newsletters it probably says from verse 27 of chapter 1 through to uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. We're not going to have time to deal with all that this morning, uh, but we're going to uh, focus on these last four verses of chapter 1 in Philippians. The Apostle Paul, under the uh, direction of the Holy Spirit, has these words to say to us from God. He writes to the Philippian church and to us as well as followers of Christ, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. These are the words of the Lord to us today. Let's pray. And now, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, please speak to our hearts. Lord, enable us. Enable us to understand what it is You are saying to not only the audience that Paul was writing to back in the first century, but very much to us in our own context here living in the 21st century. We thank you that your word is indeed a living word and that uh, it speaks to us in all of life, in in all contexts. We thank you for that and we pray now that we would be attentive hearers, but that you would, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to do that which your word says. We ask it in the power of Jesus. Amen. As I was uh, standing there in the, um, just in the uh, anteroom there, as I was listening to that, uh, I think it was a video you were hearing from, um, from the Grow Conference. I think uh, it went something along the lines of, as they introduced that, how can we live a faithful life or something along those lines to honour Jesus? Isn't that how it went this morning? Did you, were you listening? Yes? Am I on the right track? I wasn't hearing yeah, anything. Okay, cool. Awesome. How, to, how do we live faithful lives for Jesus, particularly in our own context today, in our own culture, when we know that our culture is, is getting more and more anti Christianity and, what, and, what, and, and about God and about what God's word says? How do we as followers of Jesus live in that kind of context? And how can we live faithfully for him in that kind of context? And how, you know, through our faithfulness can the gospel of Jesus Christ continue to advance 
in a, in a, in a hostile and antagonistic environment like we find today in our own culture. You know, it wasn't exactly very much different, you know, in Paul's day, in, in particularly, uh, you know, in the situation of these Philippian Christians to whom Paul is writing to. You know, back in, in their context, they too were living in a, uh, a really hostile environment to, uh, to the gospel and to, uh, and to Christians in that first century. We know that, that Philippi was a Roman colony, and as such, it was a kind of like a, a microcosm, if you like, of Rome itself. It was filled with all kinds of pagan worship and values and, and gross idolatry and immorality. In fact, those who refused to embrace this kind of, this kind of culture, the Roman culture in, in Paul's day, were viewed with a great deal of suspicion and they were targets of, of, of not just verbal attacks but even physical attacks. You want to read a bit about that? You only need to go back to Acts 16 where Paul encounters that kind of hostility in his own ministry as he preaches the gospel there in Philippi. Paul knew very well the situation that the, the, the Philippian believers found themselves in. And, uh, and you know, he's told them about you know, his own kind of situation. He's, he's been telling them about the fact that he's in chains for Christ. He's in chains because of his willingness and his boldness in, in, in proclaiming the gospel of salvation found only in Jesus Christ in his, in his ministry context in the first century there. He's been telling him about that and he says, look, guys, this is, this is how it's ended up for me. As I've preached the gospel of Christ, I found myself here now in chains because of that. Chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, awaiting trial before Caesar there in Rome. And yet Paul, you know, he says, you know what, even though you know, my situation might look incredibly bleak, and it, it looks as though, you know, that, uh, that God's not in control, you know, that, that, that what, you know, what's going on here. Paul says, in fact, that, you know, the, quite the opposite is true, that the gospel is advancing in ways which they could never have even hoped to have imagined. That the gospel is actually finding, you know, people who are coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, even there in Caesar's own household, in, in the palace, the, 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 the Roman guard, and, and, uh, and whether or not, you know, relatives of Caesar, we're not sure. But we know that there were Christians there in, in Caesar's palace who had come to a saving faith because of Paul's chains. And Paul goes on to speak about you know, his own situation. But now in these verses, he changes tack a little bit and he starts talking to the Philippians about them in their own context. And he says, you know, whether or not I come to you or whether I'm, I'm absent from you, he said, this is, this is the way to live. This is the way to live for Jesus. This is the way to faithfully live for Christ and for the gospel to continue to advance in wonderful and amazing ways. And the first way he says is this. In verse 27, he says, only. And that word only, Paul is saying, guys, this is the most significant thing. This is the most important thing you are to remember. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now we might ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel? You know, we often associate worthiness with achievement, 
and I'm going to use a bit of a state of origin analogy here this morning uh, because it's just been, you know, it's happened this week and commiserations to all the Queenslanders out there and also uh, um, those of you who are not football followers in any way, shape or form, I'm sorry, but this is just the illustration I've got this morning, all right? But James Tedesco, who some of you might know, he's the fullback for New South Wales, he got the, I think he got the player of the series. And he was deemed worthy of being the player of the series because of there were some things which they were able to measure in terms of his performance. I think he ran the most metres and he made the most line breaks and he scored a lot of tries and that sort of thing. So, you know, people considered him worthy of being named player of the series. He was deemed worthy because of achievements that he had made. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's, Paul's not saying that we, that we become worthy of the gospel and worthy recipients of the gospel of Jesus because of something that we attain to, of some achievements that we actually uh, are able to uh, conjure up amongst our own resources and abilities. That's not what Paul is saying at all. In fact, Paul, in, in the letter to Ephesians, writes this about the gospel. He says, For it is by grace... Purely a gift of God's grace that you have been saved through faith. And he goes on to, to, to say, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. And the reason it's not a result of works is those that no one gets to boast about their salvation in Christ. That it is purely a gift from God. And so to, be worth, to live lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus doesn't mean that we've got to sort of try to measure up to some kind of standard that God sets and think, oh, we've made it and now we can expect to receive God's blessing and God's goodness on us. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He's saying in light of what God has already done for you in Christ, in light of God's grace and mercy that has been poured out into your lives through Jesus and through his, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, through all of that, through the fact that God has, has really you know, sought to bless us, you know, despite ourselves, despite our own failings and weaknesses, or even in, in light of you know, how well we might think we're doing, Paul says, in light of what God has given to you in Jesus Christ, then in thankfulness, in gratitude, what, what we're expected to do then is live lives which really point people to God and his glory and his goodness. Uh, Tim Challies, who's a, uh, a Canadian a Christian author and blogger, I think he puts it really well He's, in, in describing this. He says that when he visits other countries, he always has a Canadian flag pinned to his backpack. He says, this is a sign to those around about him of his citizenship. And he wants to conduct himself in such a way that he honours his country rather than dishonours it. That is, that others will think well of his country and Canadians, I'd imagine, because of his attitude and actions. And this is effectively what Paul is saying to the Philippian church. That, that term, manner of life, can also be translated our conduct of life. And it actually is referring to as being citizens, citizens of heaven. And Paul is saying to the Philippian church, he's saying to us as followers of Jesus today, you are citizens of heaven, you are citizens of God's kingdom of which Christ is the king. And you are citizens as you go about living your lives here on earth. 
So Paul is saying, so be sure to live in such a way that brings honour to God and his King, Jesus. We're to live in a way that enhances the reputation of Christ and his gospel. And that means living distinctly. It means living differently to the, to, to the world around about us. It means living holy lives. Lives which are set apart for God and for his purposes and for his glory. And how we live our lives needs to be consistent with the gospel of Christ and with the, 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 the commands of Christ as we receive them here in his word, the word of God. If you want a, a really uh, very... Uh, uh, quite good list of things that you might, you know, if you're a really practical kind of person, you think, oh, well, you know, Duncan, t- you tell me to live a worthy life, you know, in a, in a manner worthy of, of the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Give me, some, give me some stuff that I can tick off. Well, go to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through to 21. Don't do it right now, but after, you, after we finish this morning, go to Romans 12, 9 to 21. Paul gives an incredible list of things which, uh, which, which really give a, a wonderful, all-rounded, all, all-encompassing picture, if you like, of what it is to live a life worthy of the gospel. But Paul says we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should be the consistent pattern of our lives, even when no one is looking. Paul says, live in this way, even, you know, he says, so that whether I come to you or even if I'm absent, if I'm away from you, I will still hear of you that you are living this way and that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is the second thing which Paul highlights here in this passage. He says, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a way, that can look like this. And that is standing firm together in one spirit with one mind. So Paul talks about our conduct. Now he's talking about our cooperation as followers of Jesus, our collective cooperation. He says, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you. And day goes on. See, unity and cooperation are key. Unity and cooperation are key as together, together we contend for the, for the faith of the gospel, even amidst the opposition we find ourselves in today. Our Christian pastor and author Stephen Lawson writes this. He says, to stand firm carries with it the idea of not being pushed around by another force, but to be anchored to one spot. He said it's a military term that pictures a soldier holding his position on the front lines of battle. And if the soldier neglects his post, the enemy can secure an advantage at that point. In like manner, he says, the believer must stand firm in the face of spiritual opposition, both individually but also collectively. And like the Philippian believers, we too need to not be moved away from our allegiance to Christ and his gospel. If you haven't heard me say this once, you've heard me say it numerous times. Living out our faith is not just about us. It is not just an individual thing. Living out our faith 
affects those around about us. It impacts on our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul makes that clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through to 12, when he speaks about having concern for the weaker brother or sister in the Lord. We are not to be stumbling blocks to one another when it comes to our faith. So if our actions actually encourage another believer, particularly a believer who is perhaps less spiritually mature than us in their faith, if, we, if, our, if our actions actually encourage that believer to, to fall into temptation and sin, then we ourselves carry guilt for that. We ourselves sin against Christ and against his body, the church. And that's why Paul says it's essential that we are of one spirit and one mind. It's about together embracing the same convictions about our faith and having the same allegiance to Christ and his word. And of course, that can, can translate beyond just our current congregation to those other followers of Jesus who themselves are willing to stand firmly and boldly on the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the word of God. And we, you know, we just, we've had a testimony of that this morning as Barry has come and been baptised before us in our, in our midst. That here is uh, you know, a man and his wife and, and, uh, who have been ministering in a different context, but yet dis, you know, ministering with the same convictions about Christ and about his gospel. And there are many others around about us today who themselves who may not worship similar to what we worship, who may not necessarily be in the same denomination as us, yet who still love the Lord Jesus with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength and who want to stand firm on his word and stand firm in their convictions about the gospel and the, and the, the truth of the word of God. But we to collectively as a family of believers here in this place, this needs to characterise us, folks. It needs to we need to come together. We need to come together as we as we together battle, you know, this hostile world, this this hostility and antagonism towards our faith. We won't stand in the midst of it on our own. You won't stand against that sort of stuff isolated on your own. I've told you know, my girls on numerous occasions, you know, it's a, I love it's this beautiful illustration that, that Charles Spurgeon uses. He says, you know, you put a, a coal in a fire and it burns away with all the other coals, but you remove that coal from the fire and, and it's out there on its own, then it'll stay warm for a while, but eventually it gets cooler and cooler and cooler until no longer that, that there's no heat left in it whatsoever. It's gone out. We need to band together. We need to encourage each other. We need to stand firmly together in this message of the gospel and as we proclaim the message of the gospel of Christ. You know, again, if I can use that state of origin analogy, you might, uh, you know, at the beginning of the game, just before the national anthem is sung, the players all stand there with, with arms around each other, that got camaraderie, ready to, to do battle with one another, so to speak, in that kind of you know, sports arena. You know, they, want to, they, they don't want to let one another down. They want to fight collectively together for their one common goal, and that's how we need to be as followers of Christ embracing each other, arms around one another, collectively together, advancing for Christ and his gospel in our community and further afield. We need to keep fighting the good fight of faith. 
And this is the way not to be afraid of our opponents, to know that we are not alone, to not lose heart. Remember Elijah after defeating the prophets of Baal there on Mount Carmel and he's threatened by Queen Jezebel. Jezebel says to him, you know, Elijah, your days are numbered. I'm coming after you and you're as good as dead, man. And Elijah, he runs in fear. And he runs and, and God meets him there in that place. And God ministers to him and, he, and God reveals himself to Elijah in that kind of context. And then Elijah says, he assures him that even though Elijah thinks, God, I'm alone in all of this. It's just me against all this opposition and all this hostility and all of these people coming after me. And God says to him, Elijah, there are still 7,000 in Israel who are faithful to me, who have not bowed their knee to Baal. You're not on your own, Elijah. And God wants us to know we're not on our, not on our own out there. And, 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 and the way we're going to you know, um, continue to face this opposition and to do so and not be frightened, as Paul says in these words, is to make sure that we're standing together in this. <laughs> that we're encouraging each other. And we're all, every single one of us, we're all at different stages on that journey of discipleship. So, you know, some, some people might not be as far along the journey as, as, as you might be, and they might be struggling with things that, that, that you may have, have already had victory over and you don't struggle with that sort of stuff anymore. But let's remember that we're all on that journey of discipleship and at different stages and God's work in our lives in different ways. And so therefore, let's trust God in the midst of that and get alongside and encourage one another rather than tear one another down and really be judgmental of one another when they, you know, people don't seem to measure up to the ways in which we think they should. We are to speak the truth in love to one another, yes. But we are to do that with gentleness, with grace, with respect, with kindness, with humility. Paul says, we not only do we need to think about our conduct, we need to think about our, co our cooperation. But then he goes on and he speaks about, you know, that as we live lives like this, there will be a confirmation that we will see as that, op that opposition continues to come against us and to continues to increase against us. And that kind of confirmation comes in two different ways. He says, you know, not frightened in anything by your opponents. He says, this, as you live this way, it will be a clear sign to them, that is our opponents, of their destruction, but to you it will be a clear sign of your salvation. That, that, that opposition will be a sign that you are indeed my children. Paul is saying gospel unity is a powerful witness. It's why Christ prayed in John 17 for his followers to be one. He says in, in John 17, 20 to 21, I do not ask for these only, speaking about the, the disciples in his day, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Christ is looking down through, down through the, 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 the centuries to come and the believers that will come who will believe in the word of God as passed down by the apostles. The word, the word of God that we have... Jesus writes, I, I ask for these also, Father, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So that, 
Jesus says, this is the reason why that unity, that, that gospel unity is, is so important, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's why Jesus was praying for this, this unity, this gospel unity amongst his believers, was so that through our witness, through our togetherness, as we together proclaim faithfully the word of God, the world may believe that Jesus has been sent by the Father, that he is indeed the Messiah, the Saviour of the world. Our unity and our faithfulness to Christ and his gospel is meant to point to the truth about Jesus and why he came. That is to save people from Satan, from sin, from death, from God's judgment. And as people oppose Christ, as people oppose Christ, as people oppose us, they are only confirming their own spiritual condition and their own eternal destiny. Whereas for us as followers of Christ, that opposition also can bring us a comfort in knowing that we truly belong to Jesus, that that opposition comes because we are his followers, we are his children. Lastly, Paul speaks of a consolation in verses 29 to 30. Our conduct, our cooperation, the confirmation, the, the, double, the double sign, if you like, but he speaks about our conversation. He goes on to say that our salvation and our suffering then go hand in hand. He said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and am still having. That word granted speaks of a gracious gift. Paul is saying here that their suffering for the gospel of Christ, their suffering for Christ is indeed God's gracious gift to them. Now that seems pretty strange. It can even seem pretty ridiculous to us today to see suffering for Christ as a gift and as a blessing. But that's what Paul is saying here. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Suffering for Christ and the gospel is what we should expect as believers. Listen to what Peter, the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 12-14. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of, glo of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul is saying our joy comes from knowing that we belong to God. And our joy comes from bringing honour to him. That's what Paul is saying here. Let me close with this, uh, these words from a, a missionary. Her name is Karen Watson. She went to Iraq and back in 2004, she counted the cost of being a follower of Christ. She went to Iraq to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to people in that nation, that war-torn, ravaged nation under the, the darkness of, of Islam. And she counted the cost and she sent, she, she left a letter with her pastor. And that letter was only to be opened if she was to die in that country. And she was martyred there in 2004 in Iran. And she says this in this letter. She says, if you're... If, 
She says, if you're reading this, then I have died. I have given my life for Christ. Her letter included gracious words to family and friends and this simple summary of what it means to follow Christ. I think of what it means to let our lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ when she writes, to obey Christ was my objective. To suffer for Christ was expected. But his glory is my reward. His glory is my reward. They're pretty amazing words, aren't they? Pretty powerful words. But these should be the words that come from the lips of every single one of us here in this building this morning if we are followers of Christ and if we want to indeed live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. To obey Christ is my objective. Nothing else matters. To suffer for Christ, I'll expect that. I know it'll come. But his glory, his glory, that's my reward. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to share around the communion table this morning. We'll ask the stewards to come forward. Christ doesn't ask his followers to do any more than what he has done for us. Christ was willing to give his life as a ransom for us that we may have life in his name. He came in order to suffer and die for our sin that we may be able to be reconciled to a holy God and to receive all of the blessings that come from knowing him and being called his child. And this table speaks of Christ's suffering on our behalf. It also speaks of the road that Christ calls us to. Jesus says, if you will be my disciple, if you will be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, I invite you to partake of the elements this morning, to eat of the bread, acknowledging his body given for us, and to drink of the cup, which we'll do collectively, by the way, so make sure you hold the cup we might drink together in fellowship. But that blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, that we might know the fact that we are, caught, we are indeed God's children and that our future and our, it is bright and secure in Christ. I, pray, I invite you to, to say those words this morning to Jesus. To obey you, Lord, is my objective. To suffer for you, that's what I'll expect. But your glory, that's my reward. Let's now hand these elements out now.